I need you to be honest with me. Can we do that? Can we, can we go to church and be honest? I'm, okay, I'm good. Uh, have you ever prayed and not felt comforted? Anyone? Have you ever prayed to God and you didn't feel the peace of Christ? So I'm not the only one. Good. Okay. That brings up its own question, doesn't it? That begs the question of, uh, aren't my prayers supposed to give me comfort from God and peace from Christ? And the answer is is yes. Actually, I want to turn you to a text before we get into our main text today. I want to turn you to Philippians 4. So go ahead and open your Bible to Philippians 4 for a moment, and we'll look at chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. The reason why we have to ask that question is because we know that the answer is supposed to be yes. And that's the problem with with you saying and I saying, well, my prayer, I don't always feel comforted and I don't feel the peace of Christ because we know that that has to be wrong, right? That it can't be right. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, why? What is going on? Because our prayers should, right, if if we pray them in a way that is biblical, right, if we pray them, we should have such an awareness of God's sovereignty, about his utter control over all things, that by the end of our prayers, when we pray to that holy, sovereign God of the universe who, has, who upholds the universe, as Scripture says, that Christ holds the universe by the word of his power, we should feel nothing but overwhelming comfort and peace in the presence of God in every circumstance. That, that is the right answer, right? I mean, look at... Philippians 4, what we're supposed to do in whatever situation we're in, in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In the belly of a fish, rejoice always. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. I love that. Anybody need a little more reasonableness in their life? Listen what happens. Because the Lord is at hand. Oh, if Jonah would have known that the Lord was always at hand. Right? Well, how would it change our prayers and our decisions when we understand that the Lord is always at hand? That means at hand, like he's always right here. He's always imminent. He's always around us. And it says, do not be anxious about anything. Anybody need to hear that again this morning? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So there's already the point to be made is that we should be praying in every circumstance. In every situation we find ourselves in, prayer should be what is in the midst of our lives, minute by minute, moment by moment. And look at verse 7, because here's the right answer. Verse 7 gives us the answer. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's what God's Word teaches you and me about the power and the efficacy of prayer. The problem is, why isn't that always how I feel when I pray? The problem is, why isn't this the outcome of when I'm done praying? Why don't I feel those things? We're going to answer that this morning. We're going to look into the life of Jonah, and I want you to flip to me to our main text in Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Because our prayers should come with the outcome of the overwhelming presence of God in every situation. 
And if we don't learn how to pray the way that Jonah prays, and that really is the crux here, right? We have to learn how to pray like Jonah prayed. Well, I thought you said Jonah was run away from God. Yes, and he still knows how to pray. Right? I, thought, I thought Jonah was, was one of those prophets who was kind of dumb. Yes, and we're Christians that are just kind of dumb, right? And it doesn't mean that we can't learn how to pray to a holy, sovereign God. Because if we don't learn how to pray, the consequence is we're never going to feel the effects of prayer. And that's what we all want, right? Isn't that the problem that we just, we just rose this morning? Like, there's a problem where we don't feel the comfort of God. We don't feel the peace of Christ all the time, even when we pray, when the Bible promises that that's going to happen. And so we need to learn how to pray. We need to learn how to pray so that when we do pray, we will feel the comfort. We will feel the peace of God in our lives. And Jonah knew this. I mean, and that's what I want you to see before we even jump in. Jonah knew how to pray to God even underneath the sea, in the belly of a huge fish. And this morning, we're going to learn three ways that we can pray in order that we can find peace, like Jonah, in any circumstance. But the first thing we need to do is we need to look at Jonah's framework of praying to God. And the first thing we need to know is that Jonah prayed with a framework of God's absolute supremacy over all creation. But when you pray to God, do you pray to God with understanding in the framework of your mind, your theology, if you will, if you don't, if you don't like big words, here, here's the simple word, the way that you think about God when you pray, do you think about God within the context that he is sovereign over everything, that he has created everything, and he is powerful over everything? Because if we don't start with praying there, our prayers are going to be impeded by our own inability to see God for who he truly is. Because Jonah, even in verse 1 and 2, it shows you exactly who Jonah is praying to. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God, the Lord his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to Yahweh, the Lord my God, out of my distress, and he answered me. Well, you say, well, Pastor Hayden, it doesn't specifically say that that Jonah believed in the all-encompassing power and authority of God. And I'd say that you don't know what a prophet in the Old Testament is. Right? To be a prophet in the Old Testament means you, not only were you brought up in the laws of Moses, you understood very well God's sovereignty over every situation. And so it, it did not for a moment strike Jonah as surprising that God would do exactly what he did in Jonah's life. That Jonah, as he was fleeing to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, that God wouldn't come over there, grab him, throw him overboard, put him under the torrent seas, swallow him by a big fish, and get him going back to where he should have been going the whole time. That's what people understand and know who believe in the sovereignty of God, who believe in the all-powerful majesty of the God of the universe, that we know that God is going to bring his will to pass. And Jonah prayed, I'm going to pray to Yahweh, my God, and I'm going to call out to him out of my distress, and he's going to answer me. We've got to start when we pray to have the framework of God's absolute supremacy over all creation. Here's why. So many of us don't have our prayers answered, right? and we don't even think about God in that way. It's like, then why pray to a God who can't have supremacy over everything? Right? Why, would I pray, why would I pray that God would change the minds of people that he has no supremacy over? Right? Why would I pray to God that he would take away a disease that he has no supremacy over? Can we, can we, should we keep going? Do you see why when you pray, you have to trust and believe that he's supreme over all things? Why do you pray for peace in Ukraine? Because you believe that the God of the universe is absolutely supreme over all people and all nations and all things. 
When we don't pray those things, our prayers are impeded by our lack of understanding and trust of who God really is. And what you'll see is Jonah has no problem looking at God for who he truly is. And because of that, the second part, is that Jonah also prayed about God's particular work in his life. You see, he prayed the the big thing, right? He knew God was supreme over all things, but he prayed within the context of him being supreme in his own life. And this is a hard truth because when you read verse 3 and you see what it looks like for God to be evident in his life personally, something happens. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 in Jonah 2. Here's the hard truth. For you, God... Cast me into the deep. Can you imagine praying to the very God that cast you into the depths of the earth? Well, you have, right? You do pray to the very God who puts you in uncomfortable situations, who puts you in situations where spiritual discipline happens, where chaos happens, where calamity happens. That is the God of the universe. He does do that to us for his glory and for our good. But when we pray, we have to keep those in mind. Keep reading. Verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. Listen to this. He didn't just say the waves and the billows passed over me, which is a true statement, isn't it? It's a true statement to say when I was in the water, the waves collapsed over me, and the breakers and the billows, they crushed me. But that's not how Jonah prayed to God. He said all of your waves passed over me. All of your billows passed over me. Do you see that? Jonah understood the absolute sovereignty and control of God even over each wave and each breaker that went over his head. He said, that's your wave. That's your wave. That's your breaker. I mean, the the courage, right, and and the reality of Jonah's praying, praying to the same sovereign God who is sweeping him underneath the sea. Do we pray that way? Not, God, take me out of this situation. God, this is your situation that you have placed into my life, God, I pray for your will. God, I cry out to you who have created everything in the heavens and the earth. And although the sea rages, although I'm being swallowed by the waves of the sea, your waves, God, your waves, I will still pray to you. Do our prayers look like that? Absolute trust in God's absolute sovereignty, even in my life and your life, today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. Thirdly, something really important in our prayers is that we would pray with our eyes on God's redemptive work. And this is a, I think this is a why so many times our prayers fall flat on their faces is because we never pray within the context of how God is redeeming people. Even how God is redeeming you. So much of the reason you get drawn to prayer is because something's going on in your life and you need help. And you don't realize the help that God is giving you is a redemptive work. right? It's either trying to save you if you're a non-Christian in here. right? The only prayer that you need to be praying as a non-Christian is God save me. right? Because there's no other prayer God would answer in your life anyway because there's nothing else God wants to do in your life until he saves you. Isn't that a hard truth but a true truth? Right? That's a true truth. God wants to do nothing in your life as a non-Christian other than save you. And so the only prayer a non-Christian should be praying is, God, I turn from my sins. I place my trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin that I may be your child. That's the only prayer a non-Christian should be praying. But for the Christian, every situation that God puts you in is a redemptive work in your life. It's trying to conform you. It's trying to sanctify you. 
And so it's not, God, how do you get me out of this problem? It's not, God, help me get out of this storm as quickly as possible. It's like, God, what are you trying to do in my life in the middle of this storm? How are you trying to conform me? How are you trying to chip away at at my sin and my disobedience and, and make me and conform me into the image of your son? Do you see how these prayers become more about God and less about me? That's when your prayers start getting answered. But let's, let's look at Jonah's, the way Jonah prays for God's redemptive work in his own life. Verse 2, he says, I called out to you out of my distress, and you answered me. Well, he's calling out to the only one who can redeem his life. Right? That's why we all go to pray, right? We all pray because we know that in some form or some fashion, God's the only one who can make a difference. That's good. Check mark number one. That's a good thing. Look at verse number 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Here's something that we have to understand as Christians, uh, and it's what you would call a paradox. You know what a paradox is, right? It's two seemingly opposing things that cannot, cannot come together, cannot coexist, but yet they do. And that paradox is this, that God would throw you into the sea, but he also wants to redeem you from the sea. Okay, why is that paradoxical? Because you would ask the question, why would God do something like that when he wants the opposite? Because God, what God wants is his will, and what God wanted in Jonah's life was for Jonah to turn to him. That was actually God's will for Jonah, to turn to him to do what he had called him to. So it's only a paradox if you don't understand God's will. Right? God's will is to do whatever he's got to do in your life to get you to turn to him. And so it was, as verse 4 says, Jonah says, I'm driven away from your sight. Like, Jonah knew I I have been driven away from your sight. I'm far away from you. In proximity, I'm far away from you. Theologically, I'm far away from you. But he says this, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Isn't that a statement of paradox? God, I couldn't be further from you right now, but also know that there's going to be a day I'm going to be right in your presence again. The paradox of saying, I can take the Lord's discipline, and it doesn't mean condemnation. Jonah knew that he was under the Lord's discipline, and he also knew that he wasn't being condemned by God. And so many of us always want to, uh, we always want to say that if something bad's happening to me, I'm being condemned by God. No, you're being disciplined by God. And God is doing something to bring you back to himself. And so we can have the spiritual discipline, and we should welcome the spiritual discipline. And although it seems paradoxical, and it may be, it's not false to say I can be driven away from the sight of God, yet I shall be again brought to the presence of God. That is God's sovereignty and his perfect will in our life when we don't follow him, that he would still bring us back to himself after he has brought us to a realization of his utter control over all of our lives. Look at verse 6. He says this, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought my life up from the pit. I love this because picture the prayer through the sovereign lens of God's eyes. And that's what Jonah's doing because he says, listen, I called out to the only one who could redeem my life. But you're the one who threw me into the sea. You're the one who threw the waves over me. You're the one who threw the billows of me. Yet you're also the one who brought my life out of the pit. This is the wrongness. I don't have a better word for wrongness. This is the wrongness of cursing the same God who is the only God that can save you. Right? This is why you don't see Jonah cursing God. You see Jonah giving his life over to God. And this is another reason in our prayers, how much do you spend cursing God for doing what he's doing and not trusting God for doing what he's doing? 
You see, this is hard, but it's why our prayers aren't answered. We want answered prayers. We need to be praying these kind of prayers. God, you brought my life out of the pit. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, that was it. I I was almost at the end of my rope. My eyes were closed once more and I would be gone. I remembered the Lord. Now that's a great phrase to a Hebrew. Now to a Christian, it just sounds good. It sounds Old Testament and biblical. But to a Hebrew, that means something completely different. Turn to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8 in your Bible. Are you there? Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. Deuteronomy 8, 18. When Jonah says, I remember the Lord, Jonah is hearkening back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. You know, Jonah had Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Pentateuch, right? The law of Moses. Jonah had this, and I want you to look how closely Jonah's prayer matches with Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here's the command. This is the command of God to Israel. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. That was a promise, right, to Israel that he would make them, uh, he would give them many nations, he'd give them the land that he had promised them, that he would take care of them, that he would bless them, and and he would curse people who curse them. But here's what he says. He gives you the power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods, isn't that what Jonah did? Now, of course, he didn't go after a carved image, right? He wasn't going after uh, a god in, over where he was going to Tarshish, but he was serving himself, wasn't he? He was following his own desires, his own passions, and not God's. So in a very real way, he forgot the Lord, and he went after another god himself, and, and it says them, if you go after other gods and you serve them and you worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Where was Jonah going? To the bottom of the pit in the sea. And he said, you shall surely perish if you do what? If you forget me. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Have you ever been in a situation and it's a wrong situation, and you're trying to be sneaky, but then you got put in a way worse situation because you were being deceptive, uh, and then something popped into your mind, and you remembered that thing maybe that your parents said or that your friends said, and you said, if I'd have listened to that, I wouldn't have gotten into this situation to begin with. You ever been in a situation like that? That's the same situation that Jonah finds himself in. Right? If Jonah would have just read and taken to heart what he, should have, what he already had in his mind was Deuteronomy 8, he says, listen, I'm not going to forget about you, God, because you've made a promise to me. That if we remember you, you're going to keep us. If we remember you, you're going to make sure that my feet are on a stable path. That was a promise of God to the Hebrews, wasn't it? But yet here we are, Jonah forgetting, and then all of a sudden he remembers again. And that's, that's the irony about this, is Jonah remembered. It's not just a term of recognition, it's a theological term. What Jonah did is he turned back to the covenant-keeping promises of God. That if I turn to you, you're going to forgive me and you're going to keep me. And so when he says, I remember the Lord, that'd be like you and I saying, I repent in this situation and God, I turn back to you. That's the same, it's the same thing for us. We repent and we turn to God because we remembered the Lord and his covenant. What he also did 
is he relied on the covenant-keeping love of God, which is what we all do, right? You understand when we turn away from, from God, the only thing that we can turn to is God, right? We've got to turn back to God. That's the only other way. You can run a long way away from God, and you get back to the long way from that one-way trip. You can only go one way. It's a dead end. You've got to turn back to God. And this is exactly what Jonah did. And Jonah, when he, when he was making his plea to God, turned to one thing, his steadfast love. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Doesn't that sound just like Deuteronomy 8? Isn't that what Deuteronomy 8 just said? It literally says, if you forget the Lord and you go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I warn you today that you shall surely perish. I mean, that was the promise in Deuteronomy 8. And we see it as the promise here that Jonah is saying, I understand that those who follow idols, those who go after other gods, those who go after the God of their own belly, the God of their own eyes, and the God of their own mind, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. Sidebar for a moment. This is the same reason that you and I preach the gospel today. It's the same reason that you and I have responded to the gospel today. Because what we've responded to is the offer of the steadfast love of God. Do you know what this word steadfast love is? It's the, it's the Hebrew word hesed. And the hesed love of God, uh, defined as by the Old Testament, is what we would define as the covenant keeping, promise-keeping love of God. And so when Jonah is saying, I, these people forsake their hope of steadfast love, they're not just trying to qualify a certain type of love that you and I are aware of that we have in our families or in our relationships. He is pointing to the love that God loves his people, and that is a covenant-keeping love. And so as he is praying, he says this, those who pay regard to to vain idols forsake their hope of the steadfast love of God that I have. Those who go after other gods, they forsake the promise-keeping love that you have loved us with. Do you see what I'm saying here? Jonah appealed to God's promise to his people to save him. Did you see that? Wasn't that beautiful? Like, Jonah knew, I'm in a place that I can't survive, and the only person who can get me to survive in this is the promise-keeping God. And God told me that if I turn away from what I'm doing right now and I turn to him, he's going to relent. He's going to save me. And so in his prayer, he says, I remember, I turn, and I put my hope in the steadfast, promise-keeping love of God. Is that not the gospel, my friends? Like the gospel, plain and clear, right there in verses 8 and 9 of Jonah chapter 2. And this is why we preach the gospel. Because we know those people who go after idols, whether it's the idols of fame, whether it's the idols of money, whether it's the idols of relationship, whether it's the idols of the American dream, whatever it is, those who go after those things, and those are the things they focus on, they forsake their hope of the covenant-keeping love of God. Covenant. Do you know what the covenant of God is to us? It's called the new covenant. And what is the new covenant? That anyone who would recognize they are separated from God, they would turn from their sins and they would trust in Christ, that they would be given a new heart, according to Jeremiah. That all of those who would trust in Christ, that they would be brought into the covenant family of God. They would be brought into covenant relationship with God. Therefore, all the promises of God are now valid in their life. 
And so when you and I find ourselves in the midst of the sea, in whatever storm we go, we can appeal to this as a Christian, the hope of the covenant-keeping love of God. Do your prayers look like that? Are our prayers always keeping in mind God's redemptive work in our life and in other people's life? I mean, when is the last time you were praying that, God, uh, that God's covenant-keeping love would be given to people who don't know him because you were bold enough to go tell somebody about it? Because you know that people who go after things that aren't God, they forsake their hope. There is no hope for people who don't go after God. There's no hope for them. How many times do we think about that when we go to our family reunions, when we go to our funerals, when we go to the weddings, that my family that go after these other things, forsake the hope of the covenant-keeping love of God because they don't have a covenant relationship with God. And Jonah, in the worst place in his whole life, appealed to one thing, his covenant relationship with God. And when we go to prayer to God, we appeal to one thing, our covenant relationship with God in Christ. That's why we pray in whose name? When you end your prayer, who do you always pray it in whose name? Jesus. Why? Because that's the covenant that you're under. You're under the new covenant bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why we don't just throw the name of Jesus behind the prayer, I want a Lamborghini for Christmas in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right? That's, not, that's not a covenant-keeping prayer. Right? Our covenant-keeping prayers are looking at the absolute supremacy of God. They're looking at how God is working in my life and in the lives of others. And they're the kind of prayers that look at God's redemptive work in my own life. I put it this way as point number one on your outline. When you pray, you need to pray with God's sovereignty in mind. Pray with God's sovereignty in mind. If you're new here, we've defined this word sovereignty every single week. Uh, and it's a, simple de- it's a simple definition. God's sovereignty means this, that he reigns over everything. If you look at the word sovereignty on point number one, you can see after the S, O-V-E-R, right, over. And then the next word, R-E-I-G-N, reign, he reigns over everything. It's literally in, it's in the word, right? The definition is in the word. He reigns over everything. Why is that important in your prayers? Okay, it's important because of this. What if Jonah prayed this? What if Jonah prayed this prayer instead? God In the midst of this storm, in the belly of this fish, can you swim me all the way over to Tarshish? Would would God answer that prayer? No, God wouldn't answer that prayer. Why wouldn't God answer that prayer? Because God is sovereign over Jonah's life, and God's will was not that Jonah would go to Tarshish, it's that he would go to Nineveh. So we at least all look right here and notice there are prayers that God will not answer even in Jonah's life, and there are prayers that God is not going to answer in your life because you're trying to get you somewhere where God doesn't want you to be. Can, I say, can anybody say amen to that? Amen. Good. <sighs> Man, that's good though, isn't it? That's comforting. Isn't that comforting? Right? Remember, the, the preaching point was like, we can have an overwhelming comfort in the presence of God when I pray that way because I know that what God don't give, give me, he don't want me to have. And what God doesn't want me to have in my life is a comfort to me because I know if I went after it, I wouldn't be where God wants me to be. And so when I pray and God doesn't answer, he answered anyway. That's the beauty of the comfort that we can have when we go to God with his sovereignty in mind. It's like when God answers my prayers specifically, I just thank God that I, that I understand God's sovereign will in that moment. And there are other times when I pray and I don't understand God's sovereign will and he doesn't answer me and I still thank him for answering my prayer according to his will and not my will. You see, isn't that comforting? Didn't that give you some peace? 
You came in here and you're like, yeah, I don't understand why God doesn't answer my prayers. And now you're like, he does, both ways. He answers it yes and he answers it no. He answered them all according to his will and his sovereign purpose. Mm. Okay. We have to ask, in what way did Jonah pray? Right? In what way did Jonah pray that made it particularly efficacious? Right? And, and that's a big fancy word by saying this. How did Jonah pray in a way that, that actually worked? Right? And what did he do that actually? Well, obviously he prayed with God's sovereignty in mind, but here's something else he also did. The, the simple answer is he prayed with honesty. Right? And there's some of us in here, right? if you're a new Christian or maybe you're not a Christian and you've talked to God, you've probably talked to God in some pretty rash ways that you shouldn't, but at least you were being honest. Right? Uh, people who have this promise or this problem with honesty with God are often those people who are either brought up in church or have been Christian for 30 years, uh, and you use words like efficacious in your prayer. Uh, and, and you just talk to God with these big, giant words, and you just try to wrap it up in a real nice picture and a real nice gift, and you give it to God, and you're saying, God, you have to answer this. Look how nice I made it. Right? Versus Jonah. Let's look at Jonah's response in his prayer to God. He says, God, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and here's how he explained his situation to God. I'm distressed. I cried. Some of us, most of us right there. I'm drowning. The flood surrounds me. I'm driven away from you. The waters have overtaken me. Weeds are wrapped around my head. The deep is taking my life forever. My life is fainting away. But God, you hear my cry. Like, how, yeah, see how simple that was? But just how honest and transparent it was to his actual situation? So many of us, and I'm guilty of this, I try to go to God. He knows what I'm struggling with. He knows that I'm having a hard time with some things. And I try to go to him and say, oh, Lord, God of the universe. This particular situation that I find myself in is particularly situational, and I need your help. Like, I mean, it's like we just, instead of going to God and saying, God, uh, I'm in distress, I'm crying, I'm overwhelmed, I'm drowning, and you know exactly why, and here's what's going on in my life, and I just want you to know what you already know, and what you want to do is work in my life, not try to get me to say the perfect magic key words to get my prayer answered. Do you see that? Because God's will for Jonah wasn't that Jonah said the perfect prayer. It's that what Jonah would get the point that what God wanted was Jonah back into the, his presence and back communing with him and remembering him. And your prayers, the point of your prayers, is to get you back to remember who's the boss, back to remember who's in charge, and back to remember who the covenant-keeping God is who has brought you from death to life, and he's the covenant-keeping God who is bringing his promises to light in your very situation. Does that make sense? And I put it this way in point number two. Well, you need to pray with transparency because you realize the prayer is two things. The prayer is you communing with the Holy God and your prayer should be getting you to the realization of where you ought to be anyway. I mean, that's the beauty of prayer. My, all my prayer does is get me to where I should have started anyway with God. We want to we try to get to all of our own conclusions and all our own decisions. We want to solve all of our own problems. And a transparent prayer is going to do this. I'm distressed even when I try not to be. I'm crying out even though I don't want to be. I'm drowning even though I'm trying to make it better. You can't. But when you pray with transparency, you're being real with yourself and you're being real with God. That's why you need to pray with transparency. I want to flip you to uh, Psalm, Psalm 51. Go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. It's in the middle of your Bible. Kind of open up to the middle. If you land on Psalm 51 on the first flip, you'll get a free t-shirt out at the connect table. <laughs> Psalm 51. 
Look at verse 15. Psalm 51, verse 15. Psalm 51, verse 15 says, O Lord, open my lips. I love that. Even the sovereignty of saying, I don't even pray unless you open my lips. I love that. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth would declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I find something a little troublesome, right, if you, if you know this much about the Old Testament and not this much, right? Most of us know this much. And when you read that, you're going to look and you're going to say, what do you mean that he doesn't delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings? That's exactly what he asked for, isn't it? I mean, read the, read the law of Moses. Read Leviticus. I mean, that's exactly what it tells me to do. When I sin, I need to give an offering for it. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the whole festival is that I would send a lamb in my place that I'm, I'm, I'm blemished, that lamb is spotless, we put it on the altar, we, we slay it, we sacrifice it, its blood gets put onto the, horn, the four-horned altar, and my sins are forgiven because of that. Right? I mean, that's the Old Testament, isn't it? That's Leviticus. But there's something that we have to know, and that's why we need to know this much of the Old Testament. God wasn't concerned with that right sacrifice. He's not concerned with the burnt offering. He was concerned with the heart of the people. That when the people saw the consequence of their sin, when people saw that the lambs were being slaughtered for their unrighteousness, that it would be a remembrance to them of the cost of not following God. Right? The difference is, if for us in our prayers, you can pray all the right things. That's what I'm saying. Right? We can go in our metaphorical prayer life and we can take the lamb to the altar every single day in our prayer closet, move the shoes over to the left, move the jeans over to the right, get on my hands and knees every day and do the right sacrifices, but you don't have the right heart. You don't have a broken spirit because that's what it says, God, you will not despise those things. You'll despise a sacrifice and a burnt offering made with the wrong motives, but you won't despise someone coming to you with a broken heart and a broken spirit. And that's why it's important that you pray with transparency, that you pray the reality of your situation to God. Now, here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying, like so many pastors, people I've heard, talk to God however you want. He's heard it before. I'm like, really? You just want to say whatever you want to God? That is the worst thing you can do, right? You you don't blaspheme God by using every four-letter word that you think you should, right? But what I am saying is you need to be reverent to God. He's the holy God of the universe, and you don't just get to go up to God and say whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want. Read the Bible. Things happen to people who do that. But I'm also saying you can't be rote in your prayers, right? Rote, mechanical Right? You, can't just say, you can't just say the same thing over and over again every day and, and hoping uh, that God thinks you have a broken and contrite heart. Because if you have a broken and contrite heart, you wouldn't be praying rote prayers. You'd be praying genuine, transparent prayers. Growing up, every evening at the dinner table, my family would sit around the dinner table. And every day for 18 years, we would pray the same prayer over dinner. God is good. God is great. Let us thank you for our food, by his hands, we are fed, give us now our daily bread, amen, right? 
rote prayer. Wrote the, the most rote prayer ever. Are we thankful that God gives us our food? Yes. Then say it. Right? And, well, I did. Well, did you mean it? We had, it? we had it like on a rhythm. God is great. God is good. Let's thank you for our food. By his hands we are fed. Give us now daily bread. Amen. Like, it's like, did you even mean that? I'm not here to put my family on blast. But what I'm here to do is just show you like how many times do we do that in our prayer lives? We pray because it's time to pray, not because we know we need to pray. And, and that's my concern, and that's why praying with transparency is going to fix that problem, because I have to think and be real with what my problem is. I'm not just praying because I'm going to sleep. I'm not just praying because I woke up in the morning. I'm not just praying because I'm about to eat food. I'm praying because I'm praying. Hmm. All right. Last question, right? We need to pray with God's sovereignty in mind. We need to pray with transparency. These, those things are going to give us overwhelming comfort in the presence of God. But we also have to ask the question, how can I learn to pray in a way where I can trust that God will answer me? Isn't that, isn't that the real big question? Like, how can I pray in a way where I am sure that God's going to answer my prayer? And not just with a no, but how do I know that God's going to answer me with a yes? Well, I want you to look at the whole prayer of Jonah. Right? When we read Jonah's prayer, there's one thing in particular that should pop out to us. Right? If, you're, if you're a student of the Bible and you read verses 1 through 10, your eyes should get really, really big, really, really quick. Because when I was studying through the chapter 2, I said, Jonah's praying. That's point, part one. But Jonah's praying the Psalms. Every verse that Jonah prays, he's praying his remembrance of the Psalms that he grew up with. And the Psalms that he has memorized with his mind, sealed in his heart for times just like this. Right? Jonah's prayer is pregnant with the Psalms. It's just bursting out. It's everywhere. Every verse in Jonah alludes to his intimate knowledge with the Word of God. It's important. It's important because he's praying God's will. Right? He's praying God's promises back to God in his situation. In the most turbulent time in Jonah's life, the only thing that pours from his lips are God's promises. For instance, how did Jonah know God would hear him? He's in the, he's in the belly of a fish to the bottom of the sea. How did he know? Because he remembered Psalm 120. This says, God hears our prayers and he answers them. It's a good one to keep in your pocket, isn't it? When you go pray transparently, you can pray Psalm 120 because I know God hears my prayers and he's going to answer them. How did Jonah know God would deliver him safely home? Because of that prayer that we, we in 1 Kings 8, 35 and 36, as Solomon was, was, was praying over the new temple being built. He says this, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servant. He knew. Right? He knew because he was there. And he said, I know that if I've sinned against you and I pray towards this place, that's why he said, I shall look again upon your holy temple, right? Because he knows that was where the presence of God was in the Old Testament for the people. And he says, I need to put my mind towards the presence of God. I'm going to turn from my sin and you're going to hear me and you're going to forgive me. So I know I'm going back home because I'm praying the promises of God. How did Jonah know that God would not desert him in the sea? Because Psalm 136, 23 says this, It is he who remembered us in our lowest state. You can't give us lower than Jonah was. Practically speaking, no one has probably lived lower in a state than Jonah did to that period of time. 
He was the lowest of all humanity in all of history at that point. But here was the promise. He remembers us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. Did you hear that? His covenant-keeping love endures forever. And so Jonah knew, even though I'm in the depths of the sea, I know his promise in Psalm 136 says, you can't be any lower than I am, but even where I'm at, God will hearken to his promise and his commitment to his covenant-keeping love for me. Come on. These are substantive prayers, aren't they? I mean, these are the things we should be praying. And then finally, how did... Jonah know that God would save him. Isn't that that what we all want to know, right? How did he know that God would save him? Because a prophet who came before him, Isaiah 43, 11, said this, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Jonah knew that there was no place to turn except to God. And that's why I put it this way on point number three. You need to pray using God's promises. It shocked me when I, when I studied the book of Jonah and chapter 2 in particular. And it is, it's like it's as if that part didn't go in there. As a matter of fact, there are scholars who believe that Jonah chapter 2 wasn't there. Because in the middle of this crazy situation, there is this part of Scripture that just doesn't look like the rest of it. And they think, well, they inserted this afterwards. It's like, no. They didn't insert it after. That was Jonah's prayer, quoting all the Psalms that he knew from his heart. Because no matter what situation he is in, he knows where to go, and it's God's word. And it's God's word in his heart that will come out of his mouth because he's transparently praying, and he's praying using God's promises. Why can I tell you for sure that when you pray using God's promises, God will answer your prayers? Because this verse right here, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Jot that down. 1 John 5, 14 through 15. It says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward him. I already love it. Right? There it is. But here is your confidence. Here's your foundation. Here's your assurance. Here's the reality of the situation for us. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, Pastor Hayden, how do you know if it's in his will? If it's in his promises, it's in his will. He's a promise-keeping God. He's a covenant-keeping God. When I pray within the covenant-keeping promises of God, I know God's going to answer me. Now we get to the aha. So many of us pray things that are so far from God's, God's will. We don't even pray God's promises. Many of us don't even know God's promises, and we wonder why our prayers are hindered. Here, Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. That's hard for many of us in here who don't know that God's going to answer the request that we have made. But there is a promise in God's word, his promises, not mine, that he will answer our request that we have of him if they are in his will. And the best way that you can pray to know your prayers are in God's will is when you're praying God's promises back to him and he would answer you according to his promises to you. Did you see that? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a relationship? Isn't that what a relationship with the Father looks like? And that brings me to this. Like, you can't wait for the chaos to open the Bible. Okay? You can't wait for chaos to ensue in your life, to 
blow the dust off that bad boy, you know, and, and open it up. Because Jonah didn't do that, right? Jonah wasn't in under the sea in the belly of a giant fish thinking, really wish I had that Isaiah scroll with me right now. You know, like, oh, I really wish I had the Psalter. He'd <laughs> be doing good in here right now. No, he already had those written on his heart and in his mind. And when calamity struck, he went straight to the He just started going. His, he knew all the promises of God, and he was just praying the promises of God. And even in the belly of a great fish, where the bars were closing over him under the sea, he had confidence and an overwhelming amount of peace of God in his circumstance. And it's because he didn't wait for the chaos to know God's word. For you and me, we need to understand the Bible was made to prepare you for the chaos. You ever thought about that? Like, it's, this is literally here to help you understand what's going on in the world and help you navigate it. I mean, it, this is like equivalent to boot camp. Like, can you imagine going into the military uh, and they say, we're not going to do boot camp. What we're going to do is we're going to ship you overseas and uh, you're going to go, you're going to go to war and then we'll kind of put you in boot camp as we're there. You're going to say, no, I'm not signing up for that. But you try to sign up for that every day that you try to live life without this. Now you try to live life and you try to talk to God when you don't even know anything about him. And we need to understand that this Bible was prepare, pre- prepares us to commune with God and to deal with the world that we live in. And I'm talking about from now and to eternity. I'm saying God's, this word is good for you now, but it's leading you to what's eternal Right, and that's why so many people don't even think about uh, the justice of God that's coming upon the universe because they don't read this. Right? They don't read it and say that there is a time where God is going to judge everyone according to their works. And either you're going to be judged according to your work in Christ or you're going to be judged according to your work apart from Christ. This teaches you and tells you every bit of that. And that's why we pray using God's promises. Because when I want salvation, because salvation belongs to the Lord, I can pray for salvation using God's promises because he promises me that it's not anyone's, it's not God's desire that anyone should perish, but all come to eternal life. But he says, you want to follow me, you turn from your sins, you trust in me. Mark 1.15. And I know that if I pray to him, using his promises to me, he'll answer me. And I'll be saved because I'm, I'm pointing to his covenant-keeping promise, not mine. I can pray to God and expect God to answer me because I'm praying God's promises. I'm praying his promises, and I know that God fulfills his promises. So if I'm praying God's promise, and I know he fulfills his promises, therefore I can know that God's going to answer my prayers because they're his will. Did you see that? Like people say, I don't know God's will. If you say you don't know God's will, that means you don't know his word. Because any Christian who knows God's word knows God's will. And then we would just pray them. It would be amazing to watch what God would do in this church. So to close, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I want to pray for you and for me. I want to pray for our church in the last couple of moments here uh, in accordance with God's will using his promises. So would you bow your head with me as I pray? Father, according to Acts 4.12, you say this, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God, that's your promise, that there is no other way. And so because of that, God, we pray that if there's anyone in here this morning that doesn't know you, that's never turned from their sins and a life lived for them, those who've never forsaken idols of this world and turned to you, God, I pray that they would turn from their sins and trust in you because your promise is there is 
Salvation in no one else and no other name under heaven from which we must be saved. We God, that your will also teaches us that it isn't your desire that any should perish, but all that come to eternal life. So I pray that that would even happen this morning. God, your word also teaches us that it is your will to see many people come to know you. As a matter of fact, your word says, uh, God, that we should pray to the Lord of the harvest, that you may send workers into the field. Your word literally teaches us that the harvest is plentiful, but it's the workers that are few. God, there's so many people out there who are, who are ready to respond to the gospel, and there are yet so few people going and telling them the gospel. And I just pray that you would use this church, God, because I know it's your will, I know it's in your will to see people saved and to use your people as the means to that end. So God, I pray for that. God, I also pray Matthew 28, at 18 through 20, like that we should go into all the world. We'd preach the gospel. We'd baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'd be teaching them to obey all we have commanded. And I pray even that over this room, God, that we are here to fulfill the great commandment, to learn all that you have commanded. Even as we sit in the book of Jonah, we sit because it's your will for us to learn and to sit under the teaching of all of your commandments, all of your words. So I pray, God, not only for Sunday mornings, but that this church would take seriously the responsibility of learning all of your promises, of learning all of your word, that we would go and be able to teach others that we would be able to go and see people come to know you, that we'd be baptizing people because they turned from their sins and they trusted in you. And we would train them, God, to go out and do that more. God, all those things trump all the things in our lives, all the things in the world, God, that we would help people come to know you. And God, I know we all have so many needs in our lives, and your word says that, Matthew 7. God, if we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness all of our needs, God, that which we need to be clothed with, that which we need to, to eat, and the shelter that we need all to be taken care of. You've promised that if we would focus on your kingdom and your righteousness. Therefore, we don't have to be anxious about anything. So God, with those prayers, with your promises, God, I pray them to you that you would answer them back to us according to your will, that we'd see people saved, that we would see people confident in your will, God, that we would see uh, people baptized that we would see uh, this church exploding with praise and honor to your name. And God, that we would see the needs met within this church, not because everyone's trying to meet the meet the, everyone's needs, but because of this, that they were seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness, and God, you would provide the means because we are focusing on you. And I pray, do pray for a church that loves you and loves one another so much, God, that we would see a massive revival in this community. God, that we would see people come to know you and that we see people love you and pursue you. God, all these promises I pray to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.